we anticipate hearing from our wonderful God as Pastor Chad brings the message today, let me call your attention to Scripture in 2 Samuel chapter 6. We'll begin reading at verse 5. 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 5. And David and all the house of Israel were making merry before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the, cons- the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had burst forth against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months, and the Lord blessed Odom Eden and all his household. And it was told King David, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of the Lord. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an oxen and fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. And as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his own house. And David returned to bless the household. But Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will make Mary before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. Thank you, Charlie. King David gives us uh, an amazing example of how I'm defining humility this morning. He completely forgets himself. He completely forgets 
the people around him. What causes this? Uh, I had a pretty bad habit uh, in sports growing up. I was pretty driven as an athlete, uh, but as focused as, as I was on the court, on the field, I was more focused with the stance. And so, I can't do that. Uh, and so, this is a pretty unwise habit for a male. Because the male brain can only process so many things at one time. Right? So here I am trying to remember fundamentals for basketball, for football. And simultaneously, I'm trying to read the minds of 100 spectators and see how cool they think I am. I was playing quarterback, and uh, it was at the end of a game that we were losing very badly. We're on the 10-yard line about to score. It wouldn't have mattered for the game, right? <laughs> the game's over. It would only matter for my ego. So I read the huddle off. I hit, read, the huddle. read the playoff in the huddle. Yell break. Walk to the line. As I'm walking to the line, I just start fantasizing about, I wonder how people will think about me once I throw this scoring touchdown. Well, by the time I hike the ball, I've forgotten the play. <laughs> and so I hike the ball, right? And look, running back, going to blocking assignments. No, they don't want the ball. I roll out to my right, and as I roll out to my right, I'm trying to, you know, brainstorm what possible plays could be what I'm supposed to do. And so I was sacked to end the game. <laughs> my friend who was playing wide receiver, time was absolutely furious, right? He's standing wide open in the end zone, ready to catch the ball, and I was too busy, folks, about fantasizing about glory of scoring a touchdown at the end of a losing game. I was so concentrated on looking good that I was unable to do good. Throughout my life, I've been so obsessed with recognition, with people-pleasing, with image, impressing others. That even though I was on the court, even though I was on the field, as a musician, I was on the stage, I never really engaged in these activities. I really, never really these moments because I was too concerned with what people would say about the moments. I think we have a tendency to make a fatal mistake as Christians. We get so caught up with how people perceive us, with our reputation maintaining a pious appearance at all times with how people will talk about the way we live our lives that we never actually live our lives. Or sometimes we're so worried about what will happen if we make a mistake that we never act at all. So we're in accountability groups, right? And we're so fearful of being judged that we never fully open up to each other. We never experience healing we never experience the peace of fellowship. We engage in missions, but we're so fearful of saying the wrong thing, of being offensive, of articulating theology incorrectly, of harming a relationship, that we never actually show the genuine love of giving someone salvation. In the worship service, we're so fearful of someone strange or charismatic or outside of the box, that we stand there idle, unable to move, as we attempt to express our deep affection for Christ. I feel life that there's really only one cure for this. There's really only one cure for this life-destroying 
fear. The cure is humility. The cure, whatever your struggle is, whatever your struggle is this morning, the cure is Christ-centeredness rather than self-centeredness. Because this life is all about God being on the center stage, not about being on center stage. So today, I want to lead us to this cure, this humility. I would like to offer you freedom. It's bondage that we're in. It's bondage that we're in when we're so concerned about self-image. Today, I want to discuss ways in which you can experience this freedom to live that only exists in God-centered humility. There are three different passages we'll allude to today. Uh, We don't have time to look at these exegetically, verse by verse, uh, but rather we'll kind of go through and glean from the themes they have in common. I'd like to challenge you uh, with this verse that we're going to check out to memorize some or all of this, as I believe it summarizes the posture I'm advocating in my message. I think if you live out this verse through the grace of God, it might just save your life. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. If you hear none of my man-uttered words this morning, hear this God-inspired language. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It's that simple. Message done, right? If you live this, you'll experience life more abundantly. Amen? Turn with me to Philippians 3 if you'd like. Paul gives us an amazing picture of Christ-centered humility. I would encourage us to dwell on this this week. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. So let me tell you, me, Paul, I got reason for confidence in the flesh. Pretty cool guy I am. If anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, let me tell you I have more, right? I'm a big deal circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteous under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I count as loss. So many times we encourage each other toward humility with this passage, and we kind of just stop right there. You see, fellow Christian, let me help you with your pride problem. Paul was prideful. He thought he was pretty cool. But then he decided he didn't care about all that cool stuff he'd done. That's what you need to do. Stop thinking you're cool. Go become nothing. Okay? Go become nothing. Great. I think that encouragement is short of what Paul is urging us towards. We need to be careful with how we define humility. We need to be careful with what we understand humility to be. It's kind of what I want to focus on this morning is, what do we understand when we're talking about this thing, humility? Is it just this lowering of the self? I don't think so. 
We need to be careful with the flow of action that we think occurs in humility. We tend to think it's, well, I need to become less so that God can be more. I think that's backwards, and so we'll talk about this this morning. Many religions are able to urge us towards this thing called humility, but there's only one gospel humility. Amen? It looks quite different from all the others, and ultimately I think we will see it is infinitely more satisfying than the humility the world has to offer. Before entering the 11th grade, uh, we were given a list of summer reading. We had to read these books and be ready to write an essay for the first day of school. Remember those things we used to have in school? What were they called? Oh, expectations. Yeah. (sighs) Anyway, on this list was this book called Siddhartha, right? It's a brilliant book, uh, one that completely enthralled me during that summer. And at the time, deeply affected the way that I would define this thing called humility. And while now I experience just such sadness uh, toward Hindus, for Hindus, I want you to see a pursuit of humility and inner peace that Siddhartha traveled through Hinduism because I think it's dangerously similar to how we define humility in America, including many of us in the churches. I'm going to read a, a brief summary. And I think the the highlights will be up here so you can read along with me. Uh, and if this is on your reading list, I did already see one grimace. So that, that <laughs> I, actually, I actually enjoyed the book. But uh, I'll just save you some time if you were going to read that this summer. Siddhartha is this handsome and respected son of a Hindu priest. He lives in ancient India. He performs all the rituals of religion, and he does what religion should bring him happiness and peace. Sounds like Americans, yes? Nonetheless, he feels something is missing. His father and the other elders have still not achieved enlightenment, which bothers him. We experience that in church, right? I've been in church for 50 years. He doesn't look happier than me. One day, a group of wandering ascetics passes through town. They are starved and have come to beg for food. They believe enlightenment can be reached through asceticism, this rejection of the body and physical desire. He decides, I'll follow this new path. He learns how to free himself of the traditional trappings of life, right? So he loses his desire for for property, for clothing, for sexuality. His goal is to find enlightenment enlightenment by eliminating eliminating his self. And he successfully renounces this pleasure of the world. This one scares me. Because this one seems exactly like the humility that we tend to advocate in the American church. Soon he's sunburned half-starved, but still, he's not satisfied. The path of self-denial does not provide a permanent solution. Sadly, he leaves and begins a search for the meaning of life. This time, hey, let's go for the pleasures. Years pass, and soon he's a rich man and enjoys the benefit of an affluent life. He gambles, he drinks, he dances. Anything that can be bought in the material world is his for the taking. The more he obtains in the material world, though, what? the less, the less that satisfies him. He's soon caught in a cycle of unhappiness that he tries to escape by doing what? Well, I'll just, maybe I need more gambling, more drinking, more sex. Siddhartha flees to a river and meets a ferryman who introduces himself as Vasudeva. He's kind of one of the gods of Hinduism, who radiates an inner peace that Siddhartha wishes to attain. Vasudeva says he himself has attained the sense of peace through years of studying the river. While sitting by the river, Siddhartha contemplates the unity of all life, and he has a revelation. So this is kind of the final point of Siddhartha. Just as the water of the river into the ocean and is returned by the rain, 
All forms of life are interconnected in this cycle without beginning or end. Birth and death are all part of a timeless unity. Life and death, joy and evil, good and evil are all parts of the whole. And they're necessary to understand the life. And that's it. That's the big happy ending that Siddhartha gives the world. Go sit by a river, live the simple nature-connected life. I guess I showed my immaturity while reading this book because every new life answer that Siddhartha came to through his journey, I was like, that's it. You got it. I get it. The answer to life is ridding oneself of possessions. If I can just get rid of all my possessions, I will achieve this nirvana. I will achieve this perfect peace, this heaven-like experience. Oh, I get it. Life is about getting rid of the pride. If I can just get rid of my selfish pride, thinking that I'm amazing, then I will achieve this sort of first shall be last, last last shall be first humility, and that will make me content and happy. Oh, I get it. If I can see myself as not higher than other humans, but perfectly equal. American dream, right? If I can see myself as not higher than animals and the earth and all of nature, if I can just see our connectedness, that is true humility, and that will make me content and happy. Now, don't get me wrong. As an introvert, right? If God told me, hey, here's what I want you to do for the rest of your life. Go next to a river, stay there by yourself, and philosophize for the rest of your life. I'd be like, good deal. Peace, world. (laughs) See you later, right? But I don't think this is the type of humility that Christ modeled for us as he forgave prostitutes, as he hung out with tax collectors, as he stood up for the bullying, he stood up to the bullying Pharisees and then suppressed his true power and let them hang him on a cross that he planned to die on for our sin. And while I list these theories from Siddhartha in a way that sounds like Eastern religion, if I were to put a few different Christianese words in there, I could probably preach this sermon in America and everyone would say, amen, brother. That's true religion. That's what we need to be about. Equality. The simple life. Help other people. Hey, let's just all get along. You, me, the whales, mother nature. That's true religion. But it makes no sense. In fact, I think this is exactly the humility that we've offered in our American Christian culture. Abstain from alcohol, drugs, buying stuff for yourself, spending money on travel and self-indulging experiences. Instead, come to this American church experience of nothingness. Because if you give all your stuff away and you don't care about your happiness, it'll make you happy. It doesn't make any sense. And this humility that we're selling is making people in church miserable. They're bored. I don't know about you, but I meet people all the time who go to church every single Sunday, and they're completely bored with their lives. And I don't know about you, but my mom taught me, if you're bored, duh, you're probably what? Boring. This is not the Christian life that Jim Elliott and his wife and four other families understood in the gospel. Last Friday, Bridges got together to kick off the missions conference, and we watched End of the Spear. As we watched those five men be speared to death to bring gospel to a tribe heard of Christ, I didn't 
think of their lives as boring. As their wives chose to respond to this vicious act by showing grace and living with the very people who killed their husbands. I didn't think of their lives as boring. If we are living a boring life in hopes that it will make us look more humble, I think we don't understand the gospel. When I hear about these types of things, I feel kind of silly, right? I feel kind of silly about the way I treat gospel humility. I complain that in the nine years that I've been a teacher, I've got my hand slapped a few times for witnessing to a Muslim here and helping a couple keep their baby despite their parents' demands for them to abort. I got a written warning, right? Words on paper. Words that said, hey, we don't like what you're about. Please stop. That's it. That was my big persecution. Paul was beaten constantly. All of the apostles eventually lost their lives. And Christians around the world experience this on a daily basis. I was given a piece of paper with mean words on it. That was my big persecution. I fear that if we are not suffering persecution in our lives, this may be a hint for us. This may be a hint that we haven't achieved humility. Haven't gotten over our self-preservation with which we approach every day of our comfortable American lives. We've given our money away. We've given up our hobbies because we're trying this humility thing. So we're sitting there in our living room asking each other, hey, hey, what do we do now? I guess we watch TV now. And so in the name of abstaining from the pleasures of the world, American churchgoers trade that life in for sitting in front of their TVs rather to live vicariously through the better-looking people on their screens in their living rooms. i got to tell you, I'm not attracted to that life. I think it was that with boring experience, that boring existence that led me to doubt my faith as a college student. Here I am, and everyone around me appears to be having the times of their their lives. And we Christians, we just don't do anything. I mean, what kind of of sales pitch is that? Give up everything exhilarating, because everything exhilarating is sin, and come to a place where we offer you, well, well, nothing, I guess. That's what we have, is, is nothing. Want to make that trade? This is not the life that Christ was offering the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he says, Hey, I've obtained everything on this earth. I'm going to be set for the rest of my life. Now I kind of want to invest in my next future. If if you could help me out, I I would like to attain the eternal life that rocks. So if you can just help me out with that, Jesus, make that connection. What does Jesus respond? (laughs) That stuff that you're so proud of? Give it away. It's worthless. So, again, we kind of stop there. and We teach this story as some sort of socialist, anti-capitalist message. If you want to be happy, have less stuff. And make others happy with all the stuff you gave them. Of course, then they'll be unhappy because they have stuff. 
So you'll really be making them unhappy. So make sure to tell them once they take the stuff that you gave them, they need to give it away because the nothingness they had before you gave them stuff was the key to happiness. Do we see how illogical this is? We're selling this humility that is only defined by having nothing. Let me tell you, I grew up as the son of a teacher. Now I'm a teacher. Financially speaking, I got nothing. I'm living in a simple home in the ghetto that's worth less than we paid for it before the market crashed. Our budget, our budget hasn't been in the black since we bought it six years ago. Technically speaking, I got nothing. We use all the money that we don't have to buy expensive food and supplements for Ezra so that his body can decide that it's poison and he vomits back up. Sometimes I feel like we got nothing. I spend the last six months unable to engage in most activities that I enjoy because I've had nerve issues in my lumbar spine. There have been days where I just didn't want to get out of bed because I had unbearable sciatic pain when I sit, unbearable pain in my ankles because my, my idea was I'll just be sit through and stand up all day. I have pain when I play guitar because my fingers, my hands, my wrists, my forearms are all inflamed because my nerves are all out of whack. As months passed, it seemed like my health was spiraling, not healing. So for much of these last six months, I just kind of lied in bed, wallowing in self-pity, worrying about what life would be like for the rest from here on out, because I know God's not going to get me through this. This is what he wants me to be, nothing. What is I worried about losing my job, having to go on welfare, being bedridden for the rest of my life, being a vegetable. I worried about getting weaker and less capable as my atrophied. I worried that my wife would eventually give up on me and leave me because who makes a vow to be with someone while you're a single mother while they're worthless up in the bed all day? I think I've been humbled, according to the world's definition. And having nothing by itself being humbled by itself did not lead me to gospel humility. Deflating my self-exalting ego didn't make me a better person. It didn't make me a better Christian. It didn't bring me nirvana. A few weeks ago, we were at the park with our three little boys, and one of their friends asked me to chase them. Jackson, my caring oldest son, said, Oh, my dad can't do that. His back hurts too much. What a shot to my ego, right? Here, my seven-year-old son thinks I'm so worthless, I can't even jog around a playground, right? So what did I do, right? So that has been deflated for months puffs up, and I ran up slides. I jumped on bridges. I sprinted after them, and 30 minutes later, I crawled back into bed debilitated. It turns out I hadn't rid myself of the self. It was only in hiding. Because deflating the balloon that fills with pride doesn't make it stop existing. It will reinflate at any moment because deflated or inflated, your pride is all about you. Because whether I think too much of myself or too little of myself, guess who I'm thinking about? Me. So gospel Christ-centered humility has to look like something completely different from this. 
I've experienced this thing called nothingness. I've experienced what the world calls humility, like Siddhartha. For a time, it seemed like I was able to rid myself of the self. Let me tell you, I wasn't able to put on seminars afterwards about how to obtain nirvana, how to obtain enlightenment, how to obtain life now. Because becoming nothing for nothingness sake is not what Christ is selling. Christ doesn't tell the rich young ruler to add humanitarian efforts to his repertoire and then he'll understand true happiness. Sorry, Brad Pitt, Angelina Jolie, Bill Gates, Gandhi, Cesar Chavez, Snoop Dogg, Lion, Lizzle, whatever. You can give back to the world all you want. Start civil rights movements, revolutions, eradicate the world of polio, educate the masses, and yes, the world will love you for it. Me included. I appreciate, as a human, all those things those people have done. But you want happiness? You want eternal salvation? Giving back to society isn't some sort of Maslow's hierarchy of happiness and fulfillment. Sure, Jesus loves the poor. He calls the rich young ruler to give all he has to the poor. Why? Because he knows the poor will benefit from it. They'll take all the meals they can get. You want to give your poor clothes, you want to give the poor your clothes, your valuables? Do it. Great. But you want happiness, you want salvation, you want an eternity of unending joy, come follow Christ. This is the center of humility. Jesus says, come follow me. Don't give your stuff away as some sort of plan to get to heaven, as some sort of check mark on your resume for heaven. Give your stuff because it's worthless compared to Christ. Amen? This is the humility that Christ is offering. Don't give all you have poor and sit around and have nothing. Give all you have and go be in the presence of Christ because He is everything. Write that down. I think that's very important for understanding gospel humility. Humility is understanding that Christ is everything. We don't need anything else. Possessions, pride. We read Paul's renouncing of his prior pride. And we use him as this poster child of ridding oneself of earthly self-esteem. You see, self-esteem is the devil. All at every reason to boast, and he gave it up because thinking good thoughts about yourself isn't, it's not Christian. Stop thinking good about yourself. So you learn this lesson, I guess we call it, and you spend the rest of your life avoiding compliments. Man, that was an amazing dinner. Thank you. Oh, it's okay. Man, I was really blessed by the song today. Oh, uh, I thought I was kind of pitchy. Sorry. Man, your kids turned out so well. You're an amazing parent. Oh, they're, they're good kids. There was no way to screw them up. I've been this kind of person, right? Kind of annoying to be around. Dude, why don't you accept a compliment? Um, I'm working on becoming more humble. This is not humility that God is offering us. He doesn't ask you to lower yourself 
Keep your head down. Wear all dark clothes so as to avoid stealing the spotlight from him. That's not the idea. We're going to look again at Philippians 3 and look for the reason that Paul has come to think little of his accomplishments. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself, remember, I got reason to think I'm a boss. If anyone else thinks he's a boss, I was more of a boss. Right? Skip down with me. But whatever I thought was gain, I counted as loss. Why? For the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss. Why? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish, as garbage. In order that what? I got to leave this behind. Why? So I can gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. I think we tend to follow Paul's argument backwards. We want to make this an order of religion, like Siddhartha. Step one, I'm going to rid myself of pride. And then step two, I guess I'll learn to find joy in something else, like theology and God and that stuff. That's so backwards. The flow of the gospel is the opposite. Step one, Christ reveals himself to you. That's step one. And Christ, Christ in step two, he sucks you in as this tractor beam. You follow Christ because he's sucked you into this tractor beam. Have that visual in your mind. Christ is this force you can't help but be attracted to. And so you find yourself moving towards him in something we might call walking, like Paul talks about in Ephesians 2, or hopefully running like he says he's doing as if it's a race. And why do we do this? Because we're stuck in being attracted to him. And all of a sudden you notice you're no longer around your possessions. How'd that happen? You're not in your house anymore. You're following Christ to the ends of the earth. As Christians, we didn't give up our possessions and our pride and then set out on this journey to find ourselves. That's not what the Bible says is salvation. We were magnetized by Christ. And then our possessions, our pride, they were just kind of left behind. No longer necessary. Not worthy of going on the adventure with Christ. This is the proper flow of what we, of what we might call gospel humility or Christ-centered humility. Paul is not trading out his old life for the new because it seems like a nice religious rite of passage. He's dropping his life because he sees it's garbage compared to Christ. Different scholars debate on how Paul meant this word rubbish to be understood. But all the possibilities convey the same thing. Some say it means garbage. Others say manure. And sorry, some others say it literally means human excrement. 
Daniel B. Wallace, a professor of New Testament studies at Dallas Theological Seminary, said, in Philippians 3.8, the term conveys both emotion and worthlessness. In Hellenistic Greek, it seems to stand somewhere between the word craft and the yes word. Paul's view of his former life is odious to him, and ours should be to us. The best translation, therefore, is one that picks up on both worthlessness and revulsion, and probably Paul meant for there to be a little bit of a shock value here. Isn't this interesting? A very special word, so special Paul reserves it, right? He reserves it for special instances. He only uses this once in all of his writings. He uses foul language to make it clear how worthless and revolting his most precious trophies are compared to Christ. That's a pretty powerful visual, right? If I let you just kind of hang out in that visual for a second. We should be familiar with this picture, right? We, we're transformed to find some things worthless. We just kind of do it for the wrong things, right? I loved my Galaxy S3 when it came out. Revolution, revolutionized my life. And then uh, there was a four. Now there's a five. My three is now a piece of garbage in comparison. My, bo- my boys love going to the park. They would live there if they could, right? When we tell them it's time to leave, there's an absolute mutiny every time. But if we told them we have to leave early to go to Disneyland, not only would their attitude change, but they would instantly become Olympic sprinters towards the car, right? And these visuals, this is only half of what Paul wants us to feel when comparing our old life to Christ. We also need to experience revulsion. A few years back, we showed the movie Food, Inc. to my parents. I was waiting to hear the, the uh, right? Like us, their food choices changed dramatically after watching Food, Inc. Years, le- years later, my parents were on a road trip, and uh, they had to stop to get food, and all there was was McDonald's, right? So my mom said that within minutes, within minutes of eating a McDonald's hamburger, her stomach was completely angry with her. It's like, what have you just given me? Right? You see, not only was her transformed to see the utter worthlessness of the GMO-laden cardboard. Sorry, that's a, another soapbox, right? It now recognized it as cancer-causing mess. Her stomach was completely revolted by it. Didn't want to be near it. This is what the decision to be humble looks like. We aren't limiting ourselves to somehow allow God and others around us to have a little more spotlight. That's an inaccurate way to look at humble self-forgetfulness. We're forgetting ourselves because we offer something along the lines of McDonald's or like a synthetic Twinkie, and God offers this eternal feast fit for the king of the universe. No person in his right mind would be reluctant to make that trade. Don't forget about yourself so that you have this boring void of nothingness. Forget that you exist because your life is now filled with Christ. Filled with a completely satisfying God. 
Know Christ. Know who He is. Know the three-person, omniscient, omnipresent, all-loving, eternal God. Once you know God, how could you remember yourself? How could you check for 49ers updates like I'm obsessed with for some stupid reason? How could you have room to sit in front of your screen, whether it's TV or computer or tablet or phone, for entertainment? Who would need entertainment anymore when your life is in radical pursuit of God? in radical pursuit of winning souls to his glory. I love when I come across an interview of an actor who's never seen their movies. Watch movies. I'm too busy making them. Don't you want this kind of life? Don't you want some sort of Christ-centered adrenaline that's so strong you don't need anything? Who's selling this boring humility that's just a limiting, a restraining of myself, of what I think I deserve? I want a humility that is so full of there's no room for me. When you experience that God, how do you worry about finances? How do you worry about being financially secure for the next years of this life that's driven by futility before you go live in a heaven so full of God's glory he uses gold as asphalt what a beautiful analogy that he gives through this thing called gold right throughout our life it's this rare and beautiful thing that we pursue because it's so precious and in heaven this thing that's been the height of our pursuits it's going to be below as we behold God's face. God is saying through this analogy, in a world where gold is the equivalent of asphalt, how majestic, how beautiful, how brilliant is God. Amen? How easy it will be for, to forget our existence and the presence of that God. But I don't think we have to wait. Charlie read of David's Christ-centered humility, his God-centered humility. It is with Christ-centered humility that we will be free to forget ourselves. That we will be uninhibited, without filters of action, wondering how will people respond when we're witnessing to our friends and family. We will be freed from thinking questions like, Are these the politically correct words to use? How will someone so think of me if I talk to them about God now? I mean, will they think I'm a judgmental jerk? Even after I've tiptoed around them for nine years? And accountability groups, will they judge me if I confess what I've struggled with this week? Today, I mean, talking about who I was before Christ, it's pretty cool, right? Everyone rejoices, they applaud the transformation that I've made since then. But if they knew what I did last night? What if they knew what I really lust after with my whole heart? 
they're not going to let me be the worship leader. Definitely not the leader of a small group. I'm an accountability group. If they know how angry I get with God sometimes. If they know what a horrible job I do of loving others in my whole heart. If they knew my natural inclination for discontented with life. If they knew how I covet for more and more and more. When we decide to worship, no matter the location, we won't care about the opinions of others or how it will affect our image. We need to do this. We need to long to be freed from the self like David was. Freed from the recognition that we exist. Freed from knowing that the haters exist. Freed from thinking that any human has the power to build you up or condemn you. No human can do that. They can't build you up. They can't condemn you, yourself included. Wait, you, you saw me dancing? I didn't see you there. Who was there? There were a lot of people there? Oh. I only saw God. And he was magnificent. I was naked before God. I guess that could be a little Embarrassing. I mean, I haven't been to the gym lately. Got kind of a belly going on because I've been stuck in the scrolls. I hunger after them. I thirst after them day and night. Sorry about the whole naked thing. I guess I didn't want to approach God with my crown and my robe like I thought I was somebody. I didn't want to come to him with anything that made me seem like more than I am. And you know, now that you mentioned it, I, I can see how I looked pretty foolish to society, but I don't really care anymore. It's about to get all foolish up in here because I don't care about self anymore. It's not low, it's not high. I don't have self esteem anymore. I have Christ esteem. I'm not even alive anymore. Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by dependence on Christ, who loved me and gave himself for me. I realize I might look foolish to you. I don't pay attention anymore to social norms and common sense and fiscal sense and fashion sense and American dream sense and postmodern sense. But I can't really devote myself to that anymore because I found it was nullifying the grace of God. Because of righteousness and happiness comes through being politically correct, through common core standards, or profit margins, or keeping the status quo, not ruffling feathers, telling people that truth is relative, and you should do whatever makes you happy in the moment, because life is about you. When culture determines what makes a person's self-worth, then Christ died for nothing. We'd better not face of the creator of the universe and tell him that his son, the hero of his story, died for nothing. Because if we do that, now we're the fools. Think about it. Our culture demands that we think really about ourselves. We think according to their ways, we value what they do, we ironically blend in in a world of individualism. With that. Spin around your mind for a second. To adhere to these rules, 
We must constantly worry about the way the others view us. We're constantly self-focused. Focused on ourselves. We must double-check our actions to make sure they will not be offensive to our mainstream culture. But this so-called common sense is the thing that everyone's supposed to have in common. It's pretty small. It's limited to space and time. So here we are worried about acting a fool at work, around friends, maybe in our city, maybe in our nation. When God's sense, God's logic transcends 7 billion people on the planet. All those who've lived on the planet since our father Adam All the angels who have seen history played out in the theater of the universe when God sends both eternal in both directions and we're worried about the opinions of a nation that might not be here for another century. We start to look pretty foolish. Rid yourself of self-esteem. Rid yourself of cultural esteem. These things are changing all the time. You worry about the opinions of others, they're changing all the time. You worry about what you're wanting in life. Those things are changing all the time. Exchange it for Christ-centered esteem that is everlasting based on the truth and beauty of God that is all-satisfying. Think through these verses I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live, in the flesh I live in faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, if happiness were through this place, these things, Christ died for nothing. Christ died for no purpose. The Holy Spirit will work in us to transform us to be completely Christ. To be freed from the need to please anyone but Him. Pray with me. God, we pray for Christ-centeredness. We pray that you would let us see you as you are. That the longer we're with you, the more we behold of you, the less we will remember ourselves. God, we don't want to live boring lives. We don't want to live jealous of people who don't even know you. God, forgive us for the times that we've coveted for the possessions, for the accomplishments of those who don't even know you. How silly, God. How illogical, God. That we would let ourselves become this way. That we would desire anything on this earth other than you. God, we beg you to know you more. We beg you to reveal yourself through creation, through the Bible, through the Holy Spirit, through our time in fellowship with one another. Help us to know you so fully, God, so completely that we are fully satisfied in you. Leave no room 
in our hearts to lust for glory, to lust for accomplishment, to lust for higher status, to lust for compliments or esteem or anything else from other people or from ourselves, God. Let our eyes be opened to how exhilarating you are. Hunger and thirst for you, God. As in Christ's name we pray, amen. We sing. I pray this will be an extension of what we just talked about. That we would see God for who he is. And in light of who God is, we would become less, right? I think we just try so backwards. I got to limit myself. I got to limit myself so that God will be glorified. If you just know God, you won't have to limit yourself anymore. It's going to happen. Amen? God in heaven and here am I on so I will let my words be few Jesus I am so And I will stand in awe of you. Yes, I will stand. of a love songs I want to bring to you So I will let my words be few Jesus I am so My words be few. 
you in front of God alone this morning. See no one else. See that even you, even you have disappeared. As you behold God in his full glory. Take this time and just, just worship him. Yes, I will stand in awe of you. Yes, I will stand in awe of you. And I'll let my words be Jesus, I am so in love with you. One last time. And I will stand in awe of you. Yes, I will stand. sticks with you this week, um, that that is something that you become characterized by, seeing God in his fullness and seeing everything else just fade away. Thanks for being with us this week. Um, Keep uh, the Spain team in your prayers. As always, we have the envelopes in the back um, for your tithes, for your offerings. If you're new with us and you would like to know more about our church, uh, and as always, uh, just prayer. Um, keep, keep prayer something that we do as a whole. If you're struggling with this, uh, I, I preached on this today because it's something that I struggle with, right? I, I continue to find humility in my own ways um, and not God-centered ways. So struggle through this together with us through small groups, through accountability groups, through prayer cards. Do this as bridges. Amen? You are dismissed. Have a splendid day.